Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow, or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today. If you were to ask this extraordinary actor when he knew he could sing or how he first discovered singing, he'll tell you that his family originated in Cuba and the kind of music and that love of music that was always playing in his house and how at a very young age he started singing for his grandmother. And I guess he never really stopped. Welcome, Raul Esparza, to the podcast. Hey, Hi, Raul Esparza. Hello. How you doing? I'm, um, <laughs> you know what? I'm so happy to have the distraction of talking to you right now. So when someone asks me how I'm doing, had it been five minutes ago, I would have been terrible. But now, <laughs> now I feel good. How about you? Where Where are you at this moment um, on June 23rd? I'm home. Yeah. New York City. Yeah. Yeah. Home, and home I in Manhattan. Know, yes. Well, it's the greatest city in the world. I agree. I was I was saying earlier to somebody that it's the capital of the world, and you and you and you realize how much, how much the city shapes your life and how much it affects you when it's gone so quiet. Yeah, and so different. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Miami. And born and bred, or did you like start someplace else and then move there as a kid? I was born. I was born in um, Wilmington, Delaware. Okay. And then I, my, because my aunt worked for DuPont in Havana uh, right before the Cuban Revolution happened. And um, the DuPont uh, office, I guess, out of Havana took my aunt out and my uncle on my mom's side. And then later my mom left. And then later my father, my father and my mom met in, um, actually, they met in New York City. Um, I think they went on a blind date. Wow. Things you do in the 60s. Yes, yes. <laughs> Have you ever been on a blind date? No, no. I haven't either. I can't. I'm too neurotic. I, mean, I need to know. Although now with like Google, it really, there's no such thing. Because I imagine you can find out everything you want to know before yeah, and then you, you get don't go to on the any cafe. Dates. Exactly. Which, I don't know. That's okay. We've all learned to be alone right now. I think that's been sure a remarkable have. thing about the past. But don't you feel like, don't you feel like right now this sort of um, 
world we're living in for a few minutes, like sitting here talking with you or doing a Zoom call, for a few minutes it feels like, hey, I'm not so alone. And then you hang up. Yeah. And, you're like, oh, and then you're right oh, back with, yeah. Right back in it. <laughs> right back. Oh, hello, me. <laughs> I thought I'd lost you for a while. I know. <laughs> it's so crazy. Um, well, one of the things we're going to talk about is ways people are being really creative, even though, you know, this podcast episode will live forever. But as we speak, we are sort of just really No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Forever. Um, yeah, it's like a cast recording with Sondheim in the booth. Just, I want you to feel like that. Um, no pressure. No pressure at all. <laughs> I can deal with that. I can deal with Steve no, in the booth. No, you've done it. What is it like when Steve's? What's it like when Steve's in the booth? When, when Steve, when Steve sits in the by the engineer and he takes notes, and he legendarily actually takes notes on a on a yellow legal pad. When we worked on Sunday in the Park with George and Merrily Roll Along at the Sondheim celebration, um, he asks for the center of the orchestra to be cleared, and he sits there on his own during, um, say, a dress rehearsal. And because you know, there may be other people in the theater, but because you know that there's only really one person, really sort of one person sitting in the center of the house, there are other people doing work at tech tables. And he writes on a yellow legal pad and he writes notes from the bottom of the pad to the top so he can rip them off and share them later. So if you can imagine what it's like to be an actor on stage where every couple of minutes you hear rip, (laughs) rip. Uh huh. That sounds <laughs> and slowly so the comforting. <laughs> I mean, this was many years ago, but slowly yeah, the cast turns. Everybody's performance starts to move to the front of the stage. Everyone looks slightly anxious. So in the booth, at least we don't have to go through that. But you can see him scribbling away, and uh, and uh, you just break into a cold sweat and hope that he's happy. And more often than not, he is ecstatic. And then you think, well, I can retire. Can you believe that's you you're talking about? Um, no, actually, that's a good question. No, <laughs> no. Cause that's the thing that like, that's just the fantasy, right? Like that's, yes, you know, is. we watch the company, the original company cast recording documentary and all of the kind of iconic moments from that. Um, that was sort of like, I would watch the Brady Bunch and that like both oh, sure. things my, were I, interested I, to absolutely. me, right? And now like, I didn't catch on to the Brady Bunch until I was in my twenties. I know the, you know. Uh, growing up in Miami, we had the Jackie Gleason Theater for the Performing Arts, and we had the Coconut Grove Playhouse, and I think we went to see some shows there. I remember going to see Carousel starring Robert Goulet <laughs> down there and as a little kid, and Peter Pan with uh, Sandy Duncan. And Robert Goulet Black. and Sandy Duncan are your <laughs> gateway drugs. but those are like that's the beginning of how you find musicals yeah it is and i still remember karis well i remember sandy duncan flying over my head that was incredible as a kid but you know the those touring productions were were about it and we had i did some theater in school obviously and and that's a whole longer story about elementary school and high school and things like that but i was also part of a community theater my junior and senior year of high school that was called Lakewood Players uh, in Miami. And it was um, sort of led by an extraordinary man named Lee Pittman, who had been, I think, a replacement in West Side Story. I might be dreaming that up. But he had an eye for talent that was just magnificent. He could 
gather people together in this community theater and create the most extraordinary things. He did a production of She Loves Me that was just as beautiful as anything I've ever seen professionally. Wow. And you would go to Lee's sort of rehearsals and he would introduce all of us to this world beyond Miami. And in that world beyond Miami was, was Broadway. And he had the show posters or he had the cast albums. And I remember listening to them with him. I remember listening. We, I did a production of Baby where I played Danny for him when I was 16. I love and that I remember, musical so much. Oh, so do I. So I do love I. it so, so much. Do I. It's so yes. gorgeous. Yeah. Yes. And then, of course, you can imagine like doing company at the Ethel Barrymore and like that's the theater they did, Baby. All these, all these things uh, about theater are yeah. extraordinary because things come full circle. Yeah. But, uh, but Lee just introduced me to so many kinds of shows. And like me, he did many other magnificent people down there. And um, as a matter of fact, he was a huge ment- mentor to Alex Lacamoire who uh, had been, who was a 12-year-old piano prodigy that Lee supported down in Miami. Wow. And this community theater was a sort of window onto something beyond uh, the touring companies. And, uh, and so, yeah, when you talk about Can You Believe It's You, I see that kid that I was sitting on the floor listening to cast albums with the other members of the community theater and dreaming about this faraway place called Broadway. And so when did day, you get to you know, New York for the first time and like see an actual Broadway show? You know, the first Broadway show I saw, the first Broadway musical I saw was Into the Woods uh, at the at the Martin Beck. What is that now? The, the, the Schoen? No, not the Schoenfeld. What is it? The Hirschfeld. That's not the Hirschfeld. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was in the late 80s was the first time that I, that I, we had come to New York before, but I didn't see any shows. And... I remember going with my parents. Before that, I had I had seen um, Broadway Bound, the Neil Simon play. Mm-hmm. That was the first play I saw on Broadway. So that was for college, really. Or, um, yeah, right around the time of, like, senior year in high school and, and college. So were I came your, to NYU. Were your parents musical? I always find it fascinating. You know, for a lot of my guests, they started singing in church. And that was sort of how they realized the power of their voice um, in an organic way. And then the response to their voice from the, from the members of their community. How did um, like young Raul discover what he could do with his singing? I grew up in a Cuban household. I'm the only American because I was born here or at least, mm-hmm. you know, they all became citizens, but I'm the only one who was born here. Right. And in a Cuban household, that means you have music playing 24 oh, seven. So great. <laughs> I mean, I, we, I thought everybody grew up the way I did in terms of like there, people would come over with instruments and play and uh-huh. there would be, you know, somebody on the guitar singing, or there would be somebody who brings drums or there would be a keyboardist or, um, or mariachis were getting invited to parties, <laughs> like to play. So you know? awesome. And we would have, and we would have dancing. Always, every party would turn into dancing. My parents doing uh, rueda, c- casino dancing, where they switch off partners. We call it Cuban square dancing, and or some conga line that my uncle's leading through the living room. And so music was just constantly around me, but it was always Cuban music, or it was stuff that they had listened to in, in in Cuba or when they first got to the States, a lot of it was stuff from South America or from Italy or France or Cuban music itself, but very little of it was actually American music or pop music or rock. 
So I was not really exposed to the things that I fell in love with later in life. Like it took me years to even discover the Beatles. <laughs> like right. It wasn't until right. I was in my twenties. Yeah. I was like, this band was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and then I became, then I became obsessed. Then I went yeah. down a rabbit hole of like, Oh, these guys are amazing. Um, so the Cuban music was always playing and, and I had, um, I had to learn an instrument. I asked to learn to play piano. I always tell the story. My mom said that the piano didn't match the decor of the house. So uh-huh. they bought me a guitar. They bought me a guitar at a flea market. And I was not a particularly good uh, guitar player, but I was, I guess, pretty good at singing because the guitar teacher they got me, a man named Angel del Valle, would come over every Thursday and he, we would sit in the living room and he would wear these like overly tight 70s pants that I still remember <laughs> and play, you know, these Spanish etudes. And then he would give me assignments of Cuban songs to sing. And I would learn these old songs. Um, and the only person who really wanted to hear them was my grandmother. So I would sing for her. Oh. I would sit on her bed and practice and I would sing old Cuban songs for my grandmother and then eventually get trotted out to all the relatives. And I found some tapes years ago of me just you know, caterwauling and whining away. Or at least that's what it sounds like to me, because it's that really high pitched voice yeah. uh, of a kid, you know, playing guitar. Yeah, and and that was it. Like, and then also I, I went to a Jesuit uh, middle school, high school, Belen Jesuit Preparatory School, which happens to have also been Fidel Castro's alma mater. And so I sang in the. We didn't have a choir. We didn't have any kind of theater program or any kind of music program at first um, when I was there. And yet we did sing in masses and things. So I would participate in that. So yeah, it was either through singing at the masses for school or through singing for my grandmother. But I didn't do a musical until I was about 15 years old. We had moved to California and there was a public school there, Mission San Jose High School that I went to. And at Mission San Jose, the the fall play was Plaza Suite, which is one of my favorite things ever. Um, having seen it as a kid, uh-huh. and the musical in the spring was how to succeed in business without really trying. And I got to be in both plays and the musical. Wow. So it was a big deal, actually. I still remember like how nervous I was auditioning for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, did you just say you were 15 when you moved? We moved to uh, California. Uh, my, my family moved a lot, actually. My okay. parents lived in Wilmington. They lived in Venezuela. They lived in Miami. They lived in Fort Lauderdale. Then we moved to California for a while. Then we moved back. A lot of people I talked to who just traveled a lot found the theater to be a place where it was a familiar community in a way. I don't know if that was your story, but I wonder when you when you move as a teen, you know, which is just awful, um, how that was. The experience of moving to California was very traumatic for me because um, Belen Jesuit Preparatory School was an all-boys school, and I had been there since seventh grade. And I had a lot of friends who were all very much like me. They were all Cuban kids, Cuban American kids or Latin American kids. And we all spoke Spanish as a first language, but we also spoke English. And there was this interesting balance of experience when we moved to California, it was like a foreign country. For me, California became an extraordinary place. I was really scared to go and I fought the idea. And we lived in the Mm -hmm. Bay Area in Fremont. But I remember the first day of like signing up for the school and telling myself, I don't know how this happened. Honestly, a little voice in my head said, you can be anyone you want to be here. And so choose to be happy because I was so miserable (laughs) with the move. But I was like, choose to be happy. That's so powerful. 
I'm going to leave my mark at this school. Like I'm going to leave my name here somehow. And I just chose to say yes to things that I was afraid to do in Miami. Um, among all the boys that I had been around since seventh grade, you know, yeah. I was a very quiet kid. I'm an only child. I, I would play by myself a lot. I would read or invent stories and act them out or act out Shakespeare plays alone. Um, I always tell the story that I used to act out Shakespeare's plays with my, with my uh, Star Wars action figures. And my grandmother would be like, what is happening in that room? <laughs> I want I feel like that should be at the Delacorte as soon as we can yeah. be back outside. That would be amazing. Boba Fett plays Macbeth. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, but so, so you were a really literate. I mean, you loved reading. I mean, was this like, were teachers bringing this to you or were you just curious and finding stuff? Shakespeare came into my life because in fifth grade, I was in a program, like a gifted program in the public school system in, in Miami. And um, you would go to a different school twice a week. And there was a writing uh, class, like a creative writing class for fifth graders. And the, I decided I wanted to write a story about an actress who goes crazy. And I asked the teacher, what would she play? What would the part be? And she said she would play Lady Macbeth. And I said, okay. And I went to the library and asked the library, and I bet you've never heard of this, but I'm looking for a play called Macbeth. <laughs> and she was like, uh-huh. And then she gave me a copy of the Tales from Shakespeare. And she also gave me a copy of Macbeth. It took me about a month to get through it, but I read it and I loved it. And then she was so impressed that she gave me a full copy of Shakespeare's plays that was in her family. I, I recently looked at that book again. It, it was published in 1911. I still have it. And I went through it from cover to cover. Um, wow. acting out the plays. And um, it, she changed my life. That librarian changed my life. Isn't that incredible? I wish I, could, I wish I could remember her name perfectly. Like I can see her, but I... Yeah. Well, well we can... There's an intern out there who I'm sure we can get on it. That That's probably <laughs> already solved. That's done. We have yeah. her name. Thank <laughs> who you, was the librarian at Royal said. Palm? Yes. Who was the librarian at Royal Palm Elementary School when you were in how 1979? Old? I would have been on like... It. Yeah, 10, 9, <laughs> something like you that. You know what? I promise you there's going to be – I hope she's still alive, and I hope we can send her, like, the most glorious thank you. I will say that is an amazing thing to know that I have – I was talking about Lee earlier or this particularly extraordinary woman. I often talk about my Spanish teacher from high school, Beatriz Jimenez, who was one of the greatest influence, like a second mother to me, and mm-hmm. – she started a theater pro we started a theater program together by the time i graduated we had a full like drama department going and uh that 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 experience in miami i'm sorry did i lose you no i'm crying i just got really quiet i thought i had turned turned up no no i thought i had turned up my notifications no, that's okay. Oh, I'm funny. quiet because it's really moving. I feel like, you know, I have a, a 14 and a 16-year-old, and I just think about who are the people that someday they will be telling their story to, and it's just um, it's just beautiful. Watching Sondheim's 90th birthday, I've never seen someone calmer than you when just technically things had to find and solve themselves. It was such a lesson oh to me and just like, <laughs> I know, but I'm just saying like, I feel now anytime anything happens, I just think what would Raul do? And Raul would just, well, what it looked like was someone who could like lead a mindfulness training, but what was actually going on in your body? What was actually head? going on? 
I look, the first half hour was so like we were like, okay, well, the rendering is taking a little bit longer. This is a huge file. There's a lot of videos to get up there. This is taking longer. Okay, maybe the show curtain always starts late. And we all got online and everyone like just did just crazy work to like keep people engaged. And it's going to a hundred thousand people now by the time we get that half hour through. And I'm like, wow. And yeah. Lynn, Lynn Manuel and and Ian Armitage, like they were doing the Lord's work, just getting the message out, right? Yeah. And then, then the then the platform, then we start, and then the platform freezes, or it had frozen. But you got to think, like Paul uh, out of Broadway.com, he was Broadway.com right now is basically a guy with a laptop in the Catskills, right? Okay? <laughs> Broadcasting to one hundred thousand people, so we didn't know it was frozen. None of us could talk. The microphone suddenly was on, but we didn't know why it was on, and we could sort of hear us, but not really. And all of us had to go silent. And I'm like, okay, this is okay. Then Paul had to go into total silent mode. I start laughing. I just started laughing sort of mm-hmm. in the next room. Just started because a friend said, if you laugh, your body doesn't know that you're stressed. I'm like, great. I'm going to have a hysterical fit of laughter. <laughs> but when Paul goes into laughing mode, when, I, when Paul goes into like silence mode, right then I, I, well, the truth is I ended up in a fetal position on the floor of my kitchen. <laughs> oh my God. Because that last, that the last like five minutes of like, this is a catastrophe and there's no way back. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that was where I ended up. And then it started and we were like, screw it. We're not going to go to any live. The only thing that people missed actually live yeah. was that I was just going to, going to introduce it. I was just going to introduce okay. the fact that, that everyone had, that's the only thing people missed. I wasn't going to be speaking throughout the evening. Okay. I was going to, and then I videotaped what was going to be the ending. I just videotaped that as an improv later and I, and I did a little improv. I just ad-libbed it. And then we did a little thing in the middle there uh, just to check in. And Mary yes. Mitchell did the same thing for a step. Yes. But the intro was just going to set up for the audience that what you were going to hear were songs that the artists had all chosen themselves. Okay. And that everybody had chosen something they wanted to give to Steve or that had particularly inspired them, which is why you were going to hear stuff that wasn't going to be like, you know, being alive or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, losing my mind, that it wasn't going to be the big stuff necessarily. Right. Just um, personal. So you would know too how personal. How personal it yeah. Was. Were you yeah. picturing when you were in a fetal position, were you picturing <laughs> Steve with a yellow notepad, just ripping off notes from the bottom of the page? Oh, the I pod? sure was. <laughs> Like, oh, I sure was. And he, yeah. And he said afterwards, he goes, he goes, the next day he goes, I got to say, at one point, at that, at that, 45 minutes into that, he, he said, I thought, boy, I would rather be anyone else in the world than Raul Esparza right now. You're like, I agree. I agree, sir. Like, you are so right, Steve. <laughs> Holy. And also, Jess, by the way, right, that's you the next day talking to Steve Sondheim. Just by the way, like back to the beginning of all of it. Yeah. And the librarian and the Spanish teacher and you deciding. <laughs> I, I, the biggest takeaway is like deciding to be happy and deciding to be whoever you want to be. And what a gift to have that inner power. And, and the brain that can kind of do that. And has that remained with you as you've become an unbelievably successful actor? Do you take that with you still? Like, I'm going to be okay. Um, I, We're going to be okay. I, I have found that harder to maintain sort of in life. Mm-hmm. But I'm always able to sort of hang on to it at work. The greatest thing about the theater for me, at least, or what we do for a living, 
Yeah, the theater more so than film and television, which I do love, but it's a it's a lonelier experience. Mm-hmm. Um, is is that we? I don't know. I feel like I can take any risks whatsoever, and there's always going to be something to catch you, because the audience is in the conversation with you, and they'll. I don't know. They lift you. They they carry you along, and they, and they and they have you, and you you give, and they give as well, and something beautiful happens in the space between you. So it is easy to be very brave and to remind myself that it's going to be okay um, professionally. Even sometimes when I get really scared and think like, well, right now, for instance, what does the future hold? But um, for anybody trying to make art. But at the same time, um, in life, I find the older you get and the more you know, the harder it is to feel like you can reinvent yourself and, um, and imagine different outcomes. Though this pandemic, had there not been what happened now with the pandemic and had I not decided to stay in New York for various reasons, rather than going down to like see my parents who are in their seventies in Miami and I was worried about them. Um, I wouldn't have had the idea to create, take me to the world and to work on that. And it couldn't, it would not have been made. It could not have been made under other circumstances. And so that prompted a bravery that was unexpected from all of us. We just did this thing and everybody contributed in a way that, had we had more time, it would have been more polished. But if we'd had more time, we would not have done it. Yeah. And, and, so that's and maybe not all of me. the people would have been available to do it also, even if their hearts no, of course you not. Know, would have wanted to totally. do it. Can we talk about um, just a little bit the genius that was Audra McDonald, Christine Baranski, and Meryl Streep, like that trinity Absolutely. of muses. Yeah. Um, the trinity. <laughs> yes. Of, you know, I, I mean, there are so many, you know, Judy Kuhn is one of my best friends and and her just like talking to me about the process of even just doing her song by herself because what about for those the, listening, the perfection of what she does? Oh my God. And the fact that she was being even the slightest bit critical because she was like, oh wait, everyone else hid their microphones. Like, I didn't know Ugh. you could do that, right? Like just things we look at <laughs> because we're crazy. Um, but but just seeing what it was for one person to get you a song, let alone coordinating three people and and masterfully editing it so it was comedically brilliant and still told the story perfectly well without commenting on it. Um, anyway, how did you choose those three? How did that happen? You- you expressed that extremely well, by the way, that it, the, the idea that we struggled with and struggled hard was how do we do the song without commenting on it? How yeah. do you do the song but don't do the song? Because um, the idea came first, uh, Christine Baranski, uh, I associate with Steve very deeply because she's been in a lot of his material, particularly in workshops of Assassins and Sunday and, and the production of Sunday at, at, uh, at uh, Playwrights. But she was also Mrs. Lovett at the Kennedy Center when I did when I did Sunday in the Park with George in 2002. And so she and I had worked together on Good Fight just a few weeks before everything happened. And I'm supposed to go back to film some more. And then everything got shut down. So right. I reached out to ask her to be part of this. At the same time, I reached out to Meryl, who I've worked with here and there, but is, is a dear friend of Steve's and about the coolest person there is. And Audra I had asked originally, but had not heard from her. And she was suddenly going through it with family, but none of us knew that because of the pandemic. Right. And so uh, Meryl writes back instantly. About five minutes later, Meryl says, yes, I'll do this. And we're like, okay. And then Christine writes back a few minutes after Meryl and says, hey, I have this idea. We had a dinner, Audra and Meryl and I, with Steve 
that I was telling you about on the set of The Good Fight. And I said, yeah, I remember this. And she said, uh, well, it was a really fun dinner and it'd be fun to sort of recreate it. And why don't we try to do that for Steve, like just to make him laugh? Maybe we do ladies for lunch, ladies for lunch. And, and we, could, we could all wear baseball caps, you know, as in does anybody wear a hat? Wouldn't that be fun? And I said, yeah, let's see what we do. So I suggested that to Meryl and Meryl said, um, absolutely, let's do that. She was going to sing something from Into the Woods instead that had been cut. And she said, I'd rather do this. It sounds like more fun. I said, Christine, reach out to Audra. I don't know what's going on. Audra, Christine reaches out to her. Audra says yes instantly and then calls me and goes, oh, my God, honey, I realized that you asked me to do this a month ago. Yes. Yes, you did. <laughs> and <laughs> she's like, wow. Uh, you know, so, and as the thing started to get bigger and bigger, too, they started to get a little bit more worried about what it meant we were putting together. Yes. Um, understood. And so that makes sense. We we kept trying to figure out ways to go about it that would in fact make Steve laugh and have, and have people in, enjoy the experience, but also kind of honor it. And there's a lot of history on that song. Plus oh, Patty yeah. doing it now with, with the show on Broadway. And then the fact that uh, we're all sort of stuck at home. So what can we really do? And we ended up leaning into it. And uh, a lot of the work that was put together to edit it and, and create it was done with uh, Mike Carnes out of Marathon Digital, who does um, the social media stuff uh, for Hamilton. And Lynn had, had hooked me up with him, and the, the guy's just sensational. And we created this, this Zoom call, and we were so worried that they were not going to be happy. And they were so worried that what they were creating was not going to be good enough. And right. not good enough for just everybody, but not good enough for Steve. Yeah. And instead, when we did that last Zoom call, it was 45 minutes of people falling out laughing. Just sheer delight. So much so that I remember Mike calling me later and saying, that Zoom call that just happened, he goes, that's going to be one of the highlights of my entire life. <laughs> so when, the, when we got to, by then, you know, that's around the point where I started to calm down during yeah. the actual broadcast. No and longer right in then, fetal I, position. No Sitting longer up. in fetal position, I yeah. thought. I thought, here we go. We're about to break the internet. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you tell Mike. We you tell Mike, <laughs> I wasn't on the Zoom call, and that will be one of my most favorite things I've ever seen in my life. Like, because it really was, I mean, by the way, and then there's Bernadette and Mandy and the, the simplicity oh and beauti beautiful way in which we see that you actually can keep it really simple. And that's the beauty of what Steve does. Like, it's just someone telling you a story around a campfire. I mean, it's so specific yeah. and beautiful. And anyway, I, I didn't even I would say that that's actually, oh, sorry. C can you hear me? I, I would say that that's, yeah, yeah, I can hear you. I, I would say that that's actually the greatest thing about that we discovered in this was that the intimacy of, of what, what is actually a limitation of being stuck in our homes in front of our phones and computers ended up being an asset for these kinds of songs and these performances and the gift of seeing the greatest masters of his work doing his work. To me, it's the equivalent of if we had had footage of people doing Chekhov's work in the Moscow Art Theater or if wow. we had had footage of, of, of Shakespeare's actors because these are his people. I mean, yeah. the names you just mentioned, are Judy's yeah. performance is Flawless. Elizabeth Stanley should be studied in schools for that Miller's yeah. son. The gloriousness of what of what uh, people are putting out there um, in such gentle and beautiful ways uh, was such a surprise. And you and did it, that, so thank you. 
I wanted all of this was just a way to get to say thank you in person. (laughs) You know, speaking of, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you about, but speaking of sort of the longevity of a piece, part of part of why I wanted to talk to you today is I know that you are about to perform uh, for this company, Moliere in the Park, Tartuffe, the the titular role of Tartuffe Mm -hmm. in Tartuffe. And was that play written in the 1600s? I think it was, yeah, 17th century. That was written a long Mm -hmm. time ago. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this is one of these readings that will be performed, you know, and I think we can see it on YouTube or or MolièreInThePark.org will be a way to get to it. Um, But but what is it like um, working on Tartuffe? Had you done Moliere before? I've never done Moliere except for scenes in class. Uh, But my very first professional job was as a teenager at the Coconut Grove Playhouse, and I played in a Cuban version of Tartuffe called Mixed Blessings. It was written by a writer named Luis Santero, who won the AT&T and Stage Award uh, grant for his playwriting that year. He wrote for Sesame Street for many years, and he created a sitcom out of uh, South Florida called Que Pasa USA, um, which was a fully bilingual sitcom, and it sort of documented a Cuban family's life in Miami in exile. And to me, that was like watching myself on television. He wrote this play. They did it at the Coconut Grove Playhouse, and he set Tartuffe in Miami. And so I played the son in that, and they called him Danny. It's Damis in French. And I, I wanted to revisit the play ever since then. I mean, the role of Tartuffe is magnificent, and he is such a son-of-a-bitch con artist. And I think we can all relate to what it feels like to be so timely. Yeah. To a son of a bitch con artist. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Hypocrite. You know? And I think what liar, oh, complete hypocrite, liar, thief, uh, tells you one thing while he's doing something else who pretends that what you're actually seeing isn't really happening. Um, it just works on so many levels. And so for, for, for sentimental reasons, but also for the sort of experimental notion of how do you continue to make theater or attempt to uh, feel the energy of a live event now. Yeah. And I, I think Moliere in the park is doing some, some interesting stuff with trying to create a kind of uh, even scenic design for this and bringing together actors for a minute. I tell you, Alana, it feels like we are in a rehearsal hall when we're rehearsing, when we're doing this. And that's why, how is that possible? Like, like how come? Because, you're on because you're on a Zoom call, but you're still seeing everybody's faces, and you're reading the play. But the actor just kicks in, and you begin to make choices. You begin to the second nature quality of of the actor mind just starts to imagine, which is what we always do. It just begins to play. And what yeah. if? What if? What if? What if? What if? And that kicks in so deeply that by a, 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 the end of a few hours of that, it feels like you have, in fact, been in a room together just making stuff up. Then you turn off the computer and remember, as I said, oh, no, I'm actually just living <laughs> By room. myself. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> by myself. But it yeah. is fascinating to me. And it has a great deal to do with the imagination, what radio can do, certainly, the, 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 what the voice can do, and the sense of, for a minute, inhabiting the space. You know, we talked about Take Me to the World. It had the same, it had the same energy that I think, in a way, what might have been a catastrophe is what led to it becoming such a phenomenon because everybody felt like they were in on something. It's the live yeah. event that we can't create right now. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah. But that felt live. And so here's an effort to try to create something live. And 
you know, what it is, I don't know, but it's, it's an opportunity to continue to share what we do as, as actors and, and creators of theater. And, and I think the plus side is that also it allows us to take a little bit of this into our own hands right now, mm-hmm. instead of what we always do as actors, which is ask for permission. Yeah. To do will what you we hire me? Well, yeah, when please, you please, said please. earlier, yeah, and I will actually roll. Yes, I will hire you. Um, <laughs> When you. you said earlier that you were on the set of The Good Fight and, you know, when everything shut down and there's obviously more to film once there's um, permission to do so, have you been contacted or have you had specific conversations about what shooting would look like? Because that will happen most likely before we are back on Broadway. Um, because yes. it doesn't need a live audience unless you're doing a half hour sitcom or something. So, so what are those conversations and, and can you share any insight? Well, what, what's being discussed is just, you know, what kind of testing is legal in terms of how to monitor people's health. Can temperature uh-huh. checks be established? Do Productions have to quarantine actors, say. That would be easier for a film than for a television show. And the containment aspects of it are the, the main question that's been brought up. My, my agent uh, in Los Angeles was saying that there is some production that's going, that's imagining getting back to work. But some of these are films that have huge budgets that imagine being able to fly actors in on private planes or keeping people isolated right. until they have to work together. That's not possible for, for every, everything. But you're right. I think the television, in fact, the idea is to sort of create a kind of bubble around the studio. But the question is how much are we willing to constantly be tested? How much faith do we have in um, uh, the, the, the sort of self-reporting aspects of whether right. people are feeling well or not because right. a, a television crew is a good hundred plus people. Right. It's, it's a, it's a giant office. Yeah. Just like theater. Except yeah. the, the variable with theater is that um, the audience that's, that's the variable. Yeah. So, you know, it's all very general and hopeful, but um, if you think about it too closely, it doesn't, sure. <laughs> it doesn't work. I know. Also, I have not had a COVID test, um, but my friends who have said it's actually, when done right, a crazy painful test. And so, have you had one? Like, it's I did. Awesome. I had one. I, it's like no, it's my not painful. Said, have you been to an? I had a baby. Have you? <laughs> okay, you had a baby. It's not like having a baby. Okay. They were describing it's, like they thought their brain was going to fall out when the when the swab was like being put up their <laughs> nose. And it was not your experience. No, because okay. I go to an ENT because I work on Broadway and I go to my ENT, Dr. Scott Kessler, who's been treating me since Rocky Horror, and he's a son of a bitch who likes to <laughs> hurt people. And he <laughs> takes those damn, uh, you know, vacuum cleaners up into my sinuses on a regular basis. And he gets me through the show. And I can do eight shows a week because of him. And he's okay. a miracle worker and extraordinary. But you've been through it. If you've okay. been scoped at you an ENT or you've been – or you've had one of those damn <laughs> – as a matter of fact, when they put you on the prednisone and you got to go back on stage to do your show, that that experience, which everybody's suddenly discovering, is like that's what actors go through every week just All to right. do a Broadway run. 
All right. So it's not <laughs> as bad as this friend's experience. Maybe it's they not just good. have a really it's not good, but it's not like it's that. It's not good. Yeah. It's not good. But it's 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 unpleasant. But if you've been to an ENT in New York City trying to do a Broadway show, you've been You can there. get a COVID test. <laughs> um, you can get a <laughs> You probably have, I don't know, 1,000, and I'm not even exaggerating, theater credits, um, most of those Broadway. And and it, it would be impossible to sort of, in this one conversation, go through all of them, although I want to say thank you for all of them, because I think of the 1,000, I've seen about 900. But I do <laughs> want to ask you, um, if you had to choose... Uh, kind of a inexperience it's it's this may be too hard to answer but if you had to choose an experience in a show and we'll make it broadway for this round of questions that like if you could relive that again not the kind of horror stories although they may also want you know they mm-hmm. may please you for other reasons because in retrospect you live through it um but yeah like does a memory come to you that you're like, yeah, I could do that again. That was really beautiful. And I still remember it clearly. That's a great question. If I'm, if I'm limited to Broadway, though my two favorite things I've done have not been on Broadway. Okay. Um, but that's a separate, separate thing. If I'm limited to Broadway, one of the first things that springs to mind is um, doing the homecoming at the Court Theater. Because that cast in particular was so extraordinary and the play was so great and who was um, in it with you it, it was Ian McShane uh Michael McKean Eve Best Gareth mm. Sachs you wow. know uh we we it was just a spectacular group of actors and it's Pinter and Harold actually died during the run but he would Skype us during rehearsals that experience was extraordinarily happy we were playing such a dysfunctional group of people, and yet it was um, one of it was the happiest time I have ever spent on Broadway. We could not wait to get to work, and we would go out late every Saturday night and stay up till four a.m. and then show up. I remember Eve showing up in sunglasses for the matinee, going, "Spaza, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you had me out all night." I said, "Yeah, whatever." Just the joy of wanting to be together in that room. She's just the greatest. And doing a play as opposed to doing a musical, because musicals are hard. Musicals are a hundred times harder. Yeah, it's like a corona test every night. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) Because musicals, you can't do a musical if you're sick. And you can't do a musical if you're tired. You can't. But you're always tired when you're in a musical. So you, you, you have to work so damn hard just to get through the door and convince yourself that, this will be over in three hours. And oh, by the way, I actually like this. Know. <laughs> you know, it's, it is it makes no such sense. a hard job. <laughs> it makes no sense when you describe it, but that's like not oh my God. a punishment. It's a choice. Yes. Like, I know. But crazy. a play, a play, you can show up if you're a little bit sick. And yeah. if you're feeling a little tired, you can still do it. So there was there was just a fair, such an excellent group of actors. And we just mm. loved each other's company so much. So that's that's the... I could easily revisit that world over and, and over again. It. As a matter of fact, this yeah. week I was thinking about it a lot because uh, Ian Holm died and he, and he played the role of Lenny, who uh, would, would, he originated the role that I played. Wow. Uh, all, you know, and, and what that's a legacy. Another thing too with, it's, yes, that's the thing I was going to say. It's just how we're all connected in such a huge way. We don't, 
we don't have it preserved forever because it's not on film. But every one of those theaters has a whole host of ghosts and histories sort of living in it and giving off energy. When I think about working at the Barrymore, for instance, and I mentioned Baby was done there. Mm-hmm. But Sidney Poitier worked there in Raisin in the Sun. Marlon yeah. Brando and Jessica Tandy worked there in Streetcar Named Desire. And you know, Maggie Smith worked there and Laurence Olivier worked there. And Pal Joey was performed there. So Gene Kelly danced on that stage and Fred Astaire danced on that stage. He sang Night and Day on that stage. That is an unbelievable thing to realize you're part of. And I've said this about Company many times. You cannot do a play like Company, a musical like that, and not hear the echoes of Dean Jones and Donna McKechnie and Barbara Barry and Elaine Stritch, sort of Charles Kimbrough and all these magnificent people sort of on the wind. Yeah. Because they're echoing in in you and what you're trying to live up to somehow. And Hal and Michael Bennett, who I never knew, but, but Hal and Steve, like, my God. Yeah. Uh, that you know, if matter is neither created nor destroyed, if if it's true, E equals M C squared, and 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 that's a fact, then that energy must still be there. It must. We must contribute somehow, and our lives must go on beyond us. So far, so far, and we get to do that. We get to be aware of that and vibrate in that, and 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 create in that as theater actors all the time. We get to be aware of something that most people are only dimly aware of at any point in their life. And, and frankly, I think that's just, you know, sacred mm-hmm. and a gift. Yeah. All right. Before I let you go, can you share a little known fact about yourself? A little known fact about myself. I was going to say that I'm deeply neurotic, but I think that this conversation has clearly proven that. Um <laughs> Oh boy. That's a big big known fact. On the spot. Yeah. um, I surf. I have no idea that you surfed. Yeah. Wow. Where's your favorite local? Hawaii. What's your favorite look? Hawaii local. (laughs) The break wall wall in Maui. I don't have a local here because it's too damn cold for a Cuban to get in the water up here. Exactly. Um, Raul Esparza. You are um, the gift that keeps on giving. I was thinking about all those Broadway theaters that are that are holding those stories right now and ghosts and energy, just waiting, wondering where is everybody. Um, and I, I cannot wait for us to kind of know where this story goes and how we all get to reconvene and rejoice in the. Um, the beauty that is Broadway. But until then, knowing that so many of your performances actually have been filmed and preserved, and we can hear you on cast recordings, and I can listen to you on Tick, Tick, Boom, which has been a constant um, cast recording bomb for Hmm. me during this time. So thank you for that as well. Um, Well, that's the one, isn't it? I mean, I would would say that's the one. He he nails it in in that show, and particularly in the song Why?, this is why we get up every day, you know, and I think that that's a good reminder right now, all the time, well, why we do what we do. Thank you for, um, just thank you. Thank you for your art. And um, I really look forward to seeing you on the other side of Zoom and in person. Um, <laughs> and thank you for doing this today. You are, um, you're a gift. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. It's uh, lovely getting to talk about all this. Clouds can make
To watch the Tartuffe production that Raul stars in, go to MolièreInThePark.org slash Tartuffe dash online. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.